You're listening to And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast between books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today for an author chat with Gloria Chow, whose latest novel, um, When You Wish Upon a Lantern, just came out earlier this month. So we wanted to have Gloria Chow on our podcast for a while. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the YA literature landscape, her novels include American Panda, Our Wayward Fate, Rent a Boyfriend, and her latest book, When You Wish Upon a Lantern, came out on Valentine's Day, which I will say is very fitting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like she's been an author that we've mentioned a lot on our podcast, um, but I'm glad that we finally got the chance to talk to her for her fourth book. So, um, yeah, without further ado, um, please enjoy our author chat with Gloria Chow. And we are here with Gloria Chow, the author of American Panda, Our Wayward Fate, Rent a Boyfriend, and When You Wish Upon a Lantern. Uh, she is the 2022 We Need Diverse Books mentor and is part of the NaNoWriMo Writers Board. Welcome, Gloria, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's like having, I mean, I feel like we've been talking about your books since we started this podcast or we've heard about your books. So having having you on is like, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's like having one of the OGs on our show. Thank OGs. you. That means so much. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, your bio says that you worked as a dentist before. And um, I'm just curious, how did you decide to switch careers and how did you begin your road to publication? That's a great question. It almost feels like another life now. It's been a little bit, um, but I uh, studied business in college and then I went to dental school and I actually wasn't happy from the start, but um, that was when I actually got into reading again. I had kind of a big chunk of my life where I wasn't reading because, you know, math and science were kind of where I was pushed and I was so miserable in dental school that that's when I started turning to young adult books because that was the one thing that could kind of help me get through the week. And it, it wasn't until I graduated, I started working as a dentist that I realized, you know, it really just isn't for me. I gave it five years. I was so unhappy. And it was actually my husband who first suggested, have you ever thought about writing? And it really hadn't crossed my mind. It just didn't seem like something that was an option. And I first started writing for myself. I was going through a lot. I was I was struggling and the writing kind of helped me work through a lot of these issues. And it wasn't until, you know, he kept suggesting it that I actually gave it a try, but the entire time I was writing American Panda, I actually didn't really think about, you know, if anyone would actually ever, you know, read this. And I think that's actually a good thing because I was very honest in the book and I don't know if I would have been able to if I had been thinking, you know, this is going to make its way into the world. And it was when we moved from Boston to Chicago for my husband's job and I was waiting for my dental license that I really gave it a shot. I decided, you know, I asked myself, if I, if I give it 10 years and nothing happens, you know, how would I feel? And the, the answer actually surprised me. I was thinking, you know, I would, I would be happy that I gave it a shot. And once I realized that, I was like, I think I have to go for it. I have to try. And that was when I decided, you know, I'm going to take the leap of faith. I'm going to not look for a job here. I'm just going to see what happens. I'm going to work on this book. And I was very lucky that, you know, it it ended up I getting me an agent. It ended up getting published. But it was actually a very difficult decision at the time. It's been long enough now that I can sum it up quickly, but it was very difficult. I had family members who were not supportive. Um, and so it, it really was quite a journey um, getting to this point. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your story could be its own, like, YA Asian American coming of age story. <laughs> I mean, it invokes, like, the thought of, like, go to work, go to business school, get a job at a high-paying bank, or go to school, go to med school, become a doctor, become 
wealthy. It's kind of like that's kind of the path that stereotypically, but also in reality, a lot of us children of immigrants are set on. And um, I guess, you know, speaking of your family members, have they come around on your your career as a writer? Some of them have. Some of them, unfortunately, have not. And and becoming writer did strain my relationship. I do have some family members who I, I don't talk to anymore. I do think that um, one really nice thing that came out of this is I went into it thinking that writing would be the thing that broke us. And it actually ended up helping some of my relationships. So writing American Panda made me have some very honest conversations with my mom that I was too scared to have before. And I I was having a hard time writing the parent side of the story because I, I didn't really understand a lot of the places they were coming from because we didn't really talk about it. Our way of communication before had basically been, you know, they tell me what to do. They don't really give a reason why. And we don't really have a back and forth about it. And I realized through that, that not only was that making it difficult for me to understand them, but they also weren't understanding my position. So the miscommunication was on both sides. And by by asking my mom some questions for the book, we actually started talking about, you know, my reason for switching careers. And a lot of the things we ended up talking about weren't what I expected. I had made all these assumptions about, you know, why my parents were doing this. And it was actually very different from her actual reasons. And once we were able to talk about it, I was able to, you know, tell her my side it actually did help us make a lot of progress. And in American Panda, one of the chapters at the end actually is word for word, one of the conversations that I had with my mom about, you know, her upbringing, you know, why why she had some of the way of thinking that she did. And so one really nice thing that came out of this is my mom and I are, are on much better terms. We're much better at communicating. And so, you know, some relationships actually have benefited, which was such a wonderful, you know, thing to come out of something that I thought would only cause difficulties. Um, but unfortunately, it's not the case for everyone, but at least there has been some silver linings. Yeah. I mean, when I first heard about American Panda, this podcast started in uh, sep- late September 2016. Uh, your book came out in 2018. So we heard about the book deal uh, before it got published. And I was like, wow, this is a story that is going to resonate with a lot of Asian Americans, uh, especially the kids who went into STEM and, uh, you know, they are trying to kind of fit themselves into their parents' path. And, um I mean, now you have four books out, and that's incredible. Um, but what drew you to YA, the genre? I mean, you could have done any genre uh, when you decided to r- write a book. So were you like an avid reader of YA, or was it uh, just because you were writing from like a younger character's perspective and you accidentally stumbled into it? That's a great question. I was a very avid YA reader. That was where my heart always was. The funny thing is American Panda, actually, I had a very hard time figuring out what genre it needed to be. When I was writing that book and querying and and trying to sell it to editors, there were very few college books at that time for YA or any genre, really. And when I first wrote the book, it actually took place the senior year of um, the senior year for May, and she was graduating and deciding to whether or not to apply to medical school. And I just could not find a place for this book. At that time, YA ended at high school, and then it jumped to women's fiction, which was much older. And I had a lot of agents editors just saying they didn't know what to do with this book. And I actually rewrote it three times, trying to fit it into different categories And my agent now, which at the time she wasn't my agent, I sent her the book when it was, uh, I think it was classified as new adult. Um, She actually wrote back to me and said, this, your voice actually sounds a lot like YA. Have you considered writing it for YA? And it wasn't until I rewrote it to young adult, I made May 17, a freshman in college, that everything kind of came together. It clicked. The story suddenly made sense. And even then I had a very hard time getting an editor to come on board because a lot of them, again, were saying they didn't know what to do with it. There were almost no books out that were set in college. But somehow when I decided 
American Panda is going to be YA. It just made so much sense. It's what I've always read. It's it's what I've always loved. And I think there's something very special about YA where it really has a lot of room to explore this coming of age category. And I knew that was what I wanted to write because that was what I was basically going through. I had a very sheltered upbringing, so I feel like I had my coming of age much later. And so that was kind of what I wanted to explore. I also wanted to explore it in a different setting than high school. And I'm very lucky that I was able to do that. And I feel like that's the case for many people. Not everybody goes through, you know, figuring out who they are at such a young age. I actually feel like that's kind of an ongoing thing, right? It's very universal. There's always something that you're trying to figure out about your identity. And I think YA just has the most room to do that, you know, in all different kinds of settings. So I really do love YA. I think there's something very special about the genre. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I was having the same thoughts. Like most people that I know who grew up like child of immigrants, overachievers in high school, we all kind of had our, we came into our own in college and we finally had freedom from from our parents. Right? Exactly. <laughs> that's that, that to me is when most of me and my friends came of age because, you know, before then we were just grade machines, I guess. <laughs> yes, following all the rules. Exactly. That was me too. Um, but you briefly talked about like your upbringing. So I'm I'm curious, like when you wish upon a lantern, it's set in Chinatown. Um, did you grow up in Chinatown yourself? Like, did you grow up in a very Asian American dominated town or were you like the only Asian kid at school? So I didn't grow up in Chinatown, but my parents had a very tight knit Chinese community that I grew up in, but it actually was very spread out. So where I was, there weren't a lot of Asians, but my parents just gravitated toward people like them, people who spoke their language, who had the same culture. And so I grew up where a lot, most of my family friends knew each other and, you know, we'd have these big Asian potluck parties. And I, I don't know if you have the same thing, but, you know, everyone would bring one dish and there'd always be that, you know, almond jello, um, cherry, uh, orange dish at the end, you know, and I feel like there's like a very classic kind of Asian party that a lot of my friends grew up for a long time, I thought those parties were called park a lots because that's how my mom would pronounce potluck, park a lot. Oh. So for until I was maybe like 10, I thought that was what potlucks were. That's so cute. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I did grow up, you know, in a very tight knit community. And I wanted to capture that in When You Wish Upon a Lantern, this idea that, you know, there are these people who you know will have your backs and who almost know everything about you, right? Because they're almost like your secondary family. And I wonder if, you know, we all gravitated toward each other because we didn't have a lot of family around. You know, my grandparents were in Taiwan for most of my life. And so, you know, it's important to have other people. And so I really wanted to just create this community that the reader could almost feel a part of, that they also know everybody's secrets and, you know, they know everybody's history. And um, I wanted to create this sense of just, you know, this community that's bonded by not just culture, but just by this communal love. I'm just curious, how much did you model Chinatown on uh, the actual Chicago Chinatown? I ended up making it very fictional because there were very specific needs that I had for the story. And I also <laughs> just was a little bit worried, you know, there's always a risk when you are using real things. And so sometimes I feel like there's safety in fiction. So most of the businesses are made up. And same with the characters. Yeah, um, your previous novel, Our Wayward Fate, uh, it takes place in a mostly white town. And it's like the complete opposite. Uh, what was it like switching settings so drastically, especially when like your main characters in your previous novel, they felt the need to assimilate in order to like survive all of the microaggressions? That's a great question. I think in every book that I write, I take a little bit from different pieces of my life. And so I was channeling um, some of my experiences growing up where I did live in a town that, you know, I was the only Asian and I did experience a lot of basically all of the microaggressions that were in the book were things that actually did happen to me at some point. And so I actually think it's there's something nice about being able to draw from different parts just because just partly to keep myself entertained, I guess, not entertained, but also, you know, to be able to work through things for myself. But I really like being able to switch gears in every book because I think it 
helps me be able to bring something new, I hope, to the table. Um, yeah, and there's such a wide array of different Asian American experiences, right? Like, you know, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, so I grew up similar to your characters in uh, When You Wish Upon a Lantern, which is, you know, growing up amongst an Asian community or a community where being Asian is not necessarily something that sets you apart. And, you know, when I went to college is when I first met people who grew up as the only Asian and realized that the way that you come into both accepting your own identity, but also like thinking about it is different depending on where you, where you grow up in and the way that you live. And I think it's really cool that you're able to, you know, write about all those experiences through throughout your, your many books. Thank you so much. I mean, like Marvin said, Asian American experiences are not a monolith. Everybody uh, goes through something different. And, you know, writing four books now, all of the Asian American characters in your book have a different experience. Um, just out of curiosity, like, have you ever thought about uh, writing a book where your your protagonist isn't Asian American? Or have you felt, uh, I guess, like pressured by your editors, by publishers and uh, buyers that maybe you should branch out further? Oh, that's a great question. I haven't felt pressured, partly because I guess it, it's never really come up just because all of my characters have been Asian American. I haven't thought about it too much but at this point in my career, there are still so many stories I want to tell that do have some part of the culture in it that I think I will continue to write these stories, especially because there's just there just aren't enough. Even though we have made strides, there is still so much more room. And so I do still want to continue doing this. But I do try to vary the experiences, like you said, in all of my books. And I think that right now is 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 enough. And I, I don't really see myself kind of branching out into writing non-Asian characters yet. I, I feel like even if I tried, I would end up putting all these, you know, cultural jokes back in anyway. So I don't know if I even know how to write without that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, now that you're on your fourth book, um, you know, you're, you've, you've been in this field for a while now. Um, what are your thoughts on just like Asian American stories in, in publishing? And, you know, you said that there's still some work to do. Like, how much further can we go? Like, wh what do you hope to see more of from, from publishing? That's a great question. So it has, everything has changed a lot since I started, where when I started, I felt like there were almost no Asian American books out there, sadly. And I do feel like it has been harder you hear a lot of stories where, you know, publishers, um, people in Hollywood talk about how there's only room for one. And even with some of the changes we've seen, you know, with Crazy Rich Asians doing well and all that, I do still think there is actually a lot of work to be done. I think in publishing, I do think we've made greater strides than we have in Hollywood, but I do still think there's a lot of room in that I do still think it is a little bit harder for, you know, all POC authors to break in. And, you know, you notice there's a lot of turnover with marginalized editors and people working in publishing. And there's clearly some issues that need to be addressed um, on the publishing end, you know, it, with the publishers. And there are a lot of conversations around that. And I do think we have been making some progress, but I still feel like there's there's quite a way to go. On the other hand, I am still very happy to see just how many more Asian authors there are that are getting their stories into the world. And that is just so exciting. You know, I I see all these posts from bloggers and they, they make all these graphics and I, it blows me away just how many titles there are now compared to when I first came onto the scene. So that is really wonderful to see. I just feel like, you know, we still have, there's there's plenty of more room. There's definitely more room uh, for growth. But yeah, there has been a lot of progress, especially in the YA and middle grade landscape. Uh, not so much in the adult literary space, like we do book news and book deals uh, episode every month. And I just can't help but notice that whenever I look at the adult book deals, there's there's not a lot. And I'm like, they they need to catch up. But uh, moving on, can you give us a short elevator pitch on uh, your upcoming book, When You Wish Upon a Lantern? Yes, I'd love to. 
When You Wish Upon a Lantern is out February 14th, and it follows a girl named Leah whose family owns a wishing lantern shop in Chicago's Chinatown. When she finds out that her shop is struggling, she teams up with the boy from the Mooncake Bakery next door to make wishes come true for her customers in secret. Only once they start teaming up, sparks fly and she realizes that she has a secret wish of her own that she can't seem to grant. Yeah, so in the beginning of your book, we find out that Leah and Kai, they have the biggest misunderstanding ever. Um, It all stems from this one incident where Leah actually accidentally snorts a, a boba ball because she was laughing so hard and and you know she threw up on on her childhood friend when he was asking her out but she doesn't know that he was asking her out i just thought it was like a hilarious uh situation uh how did you come up with it thank you i actually don't even know i feel like sometimes when i'm you know once i've kind of laid out the story. I didn't actually have that part laid out, but I knew that there was a reason why they weren't speaking at the start of the story. And sometimes when I write, just these these weird things come out. So <laughs> that was one that just, you know, I was like, of course, they're drinking boba. And then it just happened. <laughs> well, I was just like, is that physically possible? I mean, we've all, we've all snorted a boba ball before. It's just, you know, <laughs> luckily for me, it's always gone down the right hole. Good, good, good. <laughs> I, I don't drink... Uh, boba like with the actual tapioca balls so i i've never actually like experienced that before so i was like <laughs> is this something that is possible but uh, i'm gonna just pretend that it is possible because it is it definitely is, possible <laughs> it is it is mortifying and <laughs> i just thought it was so hilarious uh but Leah and Kai are childhood friends, like you mentioned, and this kind of falls under the slow burn romance category, which is um you know, kind of my kind of my jam, but also it can be really frustrating because the pacing can be uh, the it's all about pacing. It's slow burn romance, so you can't be too slow. Uh, what was the most challenging aspect of developing Le- Leah and Kai's relationship? That's a great question. So, speaking of pacing, I kind of have a funny story where. I did have a hard time figuring out exactly when all the beats would happen. And my husband reads all of my drafts. And at one point... Wow, you have toward- great faith in him. <laughs> I do. I do. I trust him a lot. He hasn't you know, steered me wrong yet. And here's an example where he read a first draft of When You Wish Upon a Lantern. And there was a scene where he just started freaking out. And it's very out of character for him. And I asked him, you know, what's going on? What's wrong? And he was like, they have to kiss in this scene. <laughs> and he and it is so out of character for him. He usually doesn't get that into the romances. And I kind of disagreed at first because, you know, I had a reason for writing it the way I did. And he was like, no, no, this is this is the spot. You, you can't wait any longer. And after I, you know, kind of went back and, and let it sit for a couple of days, I realized he was, he was very right. So I did need a little bit of help in this one. But you're right. The pacing is very important. And sometimes it does take, you know, a couple of tries to get it exactly right. That's awesome. I, I did feel the frustration because, you know, in this story, usually, you know, the last few rom-coms that we've read have been more like enemies to lovers or strange to lovers. But this one, they start out like having a crush on each other. So I think that just adds to like, oh, these kids just need to talk to each other. That's all you need to do. Isn't that what all teenagers are like, though? <laughs> That's the hardest thing when you're a teen is, you know, being able to talk about it. I mean, even even in your 20s, right? That's still <laughs> really hard. <laughs> I was just going to add that, uh, like, K-dramas and Chinese dramas, experts on slow burn romance, like, they really milk out every single romantic beat and you're like why haven't they kissed yet why are there so many misunderstandings if these two characters just sat down and talked to each other their problems would be resolved uh but that's the juicy part of uh slow burn romances so i had a fun time uh, reading about liang kai's <laughs> Thank you. relationship uh but i was really surprised by how entrepreneurial uh, Leah and Kai were. Uh, they were eager to continue their respective family's business. And I feel like it's usually the opposite case where the kid wants to break away from their parents' path. Uh, they want to, you know, probably do something creative, whereas like their parents want them to do something more stable. 
or they want their child to have a better life. So it, it's like, it. what made you want to flip the script per se? That's a great question. I, I feel like I've explored all the variations of that throughout my books. And in this one, I wanted to write just a happier home life. I wanted to write a healthier relationship. Although Leah does still have some struggles with her parents, but that's that's caused by the, the passing away of her her beloved Nai Nai. But, you know, Kai and Leah have very happy memories in their businesses and they have each other to help each other. Sorry. Um, so Leah and Kai, you know, have happy memories in these businesses and they help each other with them. And I just wanted to write characters who are passionate. You know, this is something that brings a lot of joy to other people. Leah, you know, helps her family create these beautiful holidays and she's making wishes come true for other people in her community. And that's just such a beautiful thing that once I knew that I wanted to have the wish grantings as a part of the story, I knew that Leah had to be passionate about it. You know, she had to be this earnest, um, very loving, caring person who just wants to bring joy to others. And so it made sense that she would love the store that helps her as an avenue to be able to do that to, for her community. Um, it also comes back to this tight-knit community that we created. They're so happy. They, you know, they get along with this group of people who've supported them their whole lives. And the businesses are, you know, such a connecting piece for them where the businesses allow them to give something back to this community. And so I wanted teens who were able to appreciate that. And Kai actually gets into baking, not for the best reason, where he has a brother who's bullying him and he kind of escapes to the bakery. But I love this idea that we can have a teen boy who falls in love with baking and he kind of owns that and it's just a part of him. And, and you know, he just wants that to be part of his future. I mean, people love a boy that bakes these days. That's true. And I also wanted to write all the delicious Chinese pastries into a book because how can you not, you know, have mooncakes and and pork balls and curry buns and, you know, all of that. Yeah. I mean, so this one of the central uh, driving narratives in your book is, you know, your, your two main characters going around fulfilling wishes um, for community members as a way to support um, Leah's family business as well. Um, and when I was reading that, I, it's kept triggering... And I don't know if this is like a common thing, but just the idea of seeing your 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 own worth through fulfilling other people's wishes. And that was something that um, really resonated, you know, having someone who um, finds their own self-worth and fulfilling others, other people's wishes while, you know, maybe ignoring her own. Um, yes, that I'm so glad you brought that up because that was a big part of Leah's character arc. And there's actually a big turning point in the book where she realizes how come I make wishes happen for everybody else and I've never worked on my own? And I did consciously think about this. I do think it's a very common, um, it's something that happens a lot with with child of Im immigrants. And I definitely struggle with that myself. And because Leah and Kai are younger than some of the characters in my other books, they're they're much more in it. They're still living under their parents' roofs. They're still working in the businesses. And so I really wanted to show Leah's struggle with that on the page. And, you know, this book is kind of about her figuring that out and realizing, you know, well, I have wishes too, and trying to figure out, you know, how can I make that happen for myself? Yeah, I mean, your characters are in high school. And in high school, your world is so small. And then it's only when you are free from your parents' thumb that the world seems bigger and you have all these possibilities. And really, I mean, I found it really refreshing that uh, your characters were so passionate about their family businesses. And I feel like there's been a shift in YA literature where the Asian American characters, they're, you know, they're not afraid of um, embracing their culture. I feel like in the beginning, it's always been like, okay, I'm straddling two cultures. My parents don't understand me. And um, like, I don't want to live my parents' dreams. But yeah, it was like, do you think, why do you think there is this shift in middle grade and YA literature personally? That's a great question. I can answer that for myself because my books have definitely taken that path. 
where I feel like my first three books were very much about that. And for me, the reason I started writing that is because that was my experience. I struggled with it a lot growing up. I was still struggling with it when I wrote those books. When You Wish Upon a Lantern came about at a time where I really just needed to remember that there was good in the world. I started writing it in October of 2020, which was a tough time for everybody. And I just needed a little bit of hope. And this idea that there was these teens who wanted to make the wishes come true for other people in their community really grabbed me. And I set out to write a contemporary book that that felt like magic, that was very joyful overall. And so I think that was why I made the shift personally. And also after writing three books, you know, dealing with all these struggles that I had growing up, I was finally ready to write something more joyful. And in a lot of ways, this book ended up being a love letter to my culture. You know, it has all of my favorite foods, traditions, folk tales, holidays. And for me, I was just ready to embrace that part of me. And so I wanted to write a book about that. As for the literature as a whole, I do think that there are some shifts, um, perhaps in the actual generations that's happening. I do think people are a little bit more open to embracing that side than perhaps when I was growing up, you know, looking at my friends and me. And so I, I do think that the shift perhaps is just mirroring that we are, it's great. We're getting younger and younger writers writing YA. You know, I've heard from authors who ask me to blurb their book and they say, I I read you growing up, which does make me feel a little bit old, but it also makes me feel wonderful. (laughs) But I do think there's a little bit of that shift too, because we are just getting a different generation of writers. And so they have a different experience to bring, which is just so wonderful. We really need all of these books out there, all of these experiences, because as you said before, it's not a monolith and we need to capture as, as much of this you know, the breadth of experience as we can. I definitely agree with the generation aspect. I mean, like, back when I was growing up, it was kind of questionable to like K-pop and watch right, drama exactly. and eat Asian snacks. People would side-eye you if you were eating shrimp chips. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Shrimp chips yeah. are like seaweed. the best. I would get made yeah. fun of for bringing seaweed in. Yep. And, and now, like, it just feels like Asian food and Asian culture is mainstream. It's it's fun. So of course, there will be a generation shift in in like how Asian culture is viewed. So I definitely agree with your statement. Yeah. So your book has a lot of Chinese holidays and festivals. Um, for me, as as a Korean, like I did not know about Wishing Lanterns. I did not know about half of these festivals. Um, and I feel like that is the experience of a lot of Asian Americans, a lot of the holidays from the motherland. It it kind of gets lost, the customs. And um, I was just wondering if you grew up celebrating these holidays and festivals in the book. And, you know, like if you didn't, how much research did you have to do on these uh, holidays? That's a great question. I feel like every family I knew growing up celebrated all the Chinese holidays in a different way. For for my family, it was just all about food. It was an excuse to eat as much as we could and to get together. And I love that, you know, we would get great Chinese food. So I actually did have to do a lot of research for a lot of the holidays that I put into this book. And I actually did try very hard to make it clear that there are so many traditions, not just between the diaspora here, but even throughout all the years of history in China and Taiwan. So the main holiday in this book is Qixi, the evening of sevens, which is sometimes referred to as the Chinese Valentine's Day, but it's on the seventh day of the seventh month in the Lunar New Year. And in the book, Leah's family does their own version of it, where they celebrate it on July 7th every every year in America, even though it's not the Lunar New Year. And Leah tries to make the festival bigger by taking customs from all different kinds of celebrations. So I did a lot of research on this and found out that through all the dynasties, even the traditions would change a lot. And so I tried to draw a little bit from all these pieces. And Leah even has a line in the book where she says, you know, our our celebration of this holiday is going to be completely unique because of all the things that we drew from. 
And she views it as this opportunity, right? All it means is that there's even more ways that you can find something that you think is fun and you can do, which I think is a great way to look at it. And even researching all of these holidays, I called my mom a lot. I was asking her, I remember also about Ghost Festival, because that was something that we didn't partake in. And that's that's a very important chapter also in the book. And even then, she had to do research. She would tell me things like, oh, I remember this from my childhood. But then again, I think that was just something my family did. And so it is kind of this interesting thing where, yeah, everybody has a different interpretation. There is no one right answer, right? But like Leah, I tried to view it as an opportunity. It means there's a lot of fun things you can take from it. And I also really tried to use that where the community has their own version of it. And so I created a version that would make sense for the community and also would serve different plot points in the book. I love the fact that um, they decided to make a holiday just like they're like, it's just simple to make it July 7th, like <laughs> because it's the seventh month. And um with like the lunar new year lunar new year is like in 2 days and i'm i'm just like why does it change every year i have such bad memory <laughs> i wish it would just be simple and, and and be in the solar calendar and be the same every year but you know my dad actually celebrates his birthday according to his lunar calendar birthday so his birthday changes every year i need to I need to procure one of those Chinese calendars from like the local supermarket, which these days they don't even give them out anymore. You have to be like a member or like a special an app. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's harder and harder these days to keep track of what my dad's birthday is. That's really funny. Yeah. My, my grandma does that, but luckily she's even of the older generation where she just turns a year older on Chinese new year. So I just have to keep track of when Chinese new year is. Oh my gosh, the Korean culture is like that too, but um, they're getting rid of it. So everybody is oh. decreasing in age uh, this year. Uh, but speaking of your grandmother, uh, Leah and her bond with her nai is like so sweet. And I feel like it's relatable to a lot of Asian American, quote unquote, latchkey kids who are raised by their grandparents while their parents uh, minded the store or went to work. Uh, was this cultural experience something you knew you wanted to explore from the very first draft? Yes, definitely. So that was part of the book from the beginning where I wanted Leah and her bond with her grandmother to just be very special and to kind of drive a lot of the the challenges that she has throughout the book. I mean, we... I mean, we talked about like Lunar New Year and like all the holidays and quirks. Um, and you do... In include a lot of like Chinese traits and quirks like the three finger tap when your tea gets refilled, which I did not know about. Um, <laughs> so I was re I really appreciated like all of the small details. Uh, but what was it like describing these quirks to a non-Chinese audience? Uh, like, did you struggle with, um, you know, not over explaining or just be like, OK, like maybe I shouldn't explain and have the readers just kind of catch on like what 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 was going through your head when you were writing these uh quirks this question really speaks to me because i have struggled with this through all my books so i will say that it was the hardest for american panda just because it was my first and i was still trying to you know figure out it has gotten easier book to book just because you know after working out certain things in my previous ones you kind of carry that over but I've always struggled with this, not just for the traditions, but also for the language. I put a lot of Mandarin in my books. And in the end, I decided that because not everybody, even Asians, even people with similar upbringings as me, whose parents came over from Taiwan, they don't know all the same traditions, all the same phrases as I do. I decided that as a reader, if I didn't know, I would want to know the background for it. And because of that, I decided to put in explanations where I thought there was something worth explaining. So sometimes with Mandarin words, I'll leave it up to context. You know, I, I always try to write it so that a reader who doesn't speak the language can pick up the meaning from it. But then I also put a glossary in the back of my third and fourth book where I actually give you more background detail. So I'll tell you kind of a story about some of the names or the holidays that you didn't pick up in the book. And I'm lucky that I, I I have 
readers who can kind of help me with that and tell me if there are things missing. Um, but sometimes it does feel like there, there it's, it's a very difficult situation and there isn't really a win-win, right? Because there's always a question of how much you can put in and are you putting in enough and are you over-explaining? But I basically just try to use my gut and think, you know, as a reader, what would I want to know? When I do research, I think, what are the most interesting parts to me where when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, that's such a cool piece of information. You know, if it's something that excited me, then I'll put it in the book and hope that someone else will find it interesting as well. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people who have been doing the finger tap thing without knowing the context, learning it for the first time. Because I know for me, definitely growing up, I definitely learned that behavior before I learned what it actually came from like i had been doing for decades before someone explained to me what it actually was so um yeah i think that's true for a lot of things right because for me i just picked things up from my parents that's how i learned the language was just hearing them speak and i would mimic what they do and it wasn't until i started writing these books that i really started thinking about why do we use this word for the phrase why do we do this and sometimes i'll call my mom and ask and she's like i have no idea why would i have ever thought about that so <laughs> It's the same for her. And then, you know, I go look it up. And when I tell her, she's like, oh, I had no idea. So it is kind of this funny thing. But I guess that's true for Americans as well, right? Like, do you, do we know why 13 is superstitious? Most people <laughs> don't know if there's a backstory to that. Yeah. And, you know, the Chinese language, especially Mandarin, is just full of idioms, right? Because um, our parents were forced to learn poems growing up to like as, as ways to describe certain, certain things. And so, you know, just... We just pick those up and it, it seems natural, but if you think about it, it's like, hmm, why do we say this? Why do we do this? I mean, there's a lot of thing in American culture where, you know, you're just like, I don't know. That's just a thing. Because I, I remember I had to explain uh, like Thanksgiving to my uh, Korean relatives who like immigrated here for a short time. And I was just like, ah, like, I I don't know. It's just a day where we just eat a lot of food. Just... I don't really want to get into the context of uh, the history behind it. Just you don't need to know. <laughs> um, but Leah has this love for reality dating shows and even the Chinese ones. I thought it was really funny how uh, she watches this one show where the the Chinese mom picks the uh, the Chinese mom dates the uh, candidates and kind of figures out like who is best suited for their child in in potential marriage. Uh, are you also a reality dating show connoisseur? Like, what is your favorite dating show? I wouldn't say connoisseur, but I do watch some of them. And unlike Leah, I am not as proud and open about it. <laughs> <laughs> but since you asked, <laughs> I will say that I watched Love Island this this year for the first time, and I did find it very entertaining. And so I do watch more of the reality shows. Like, I love reality dance shows. So I've watched So You Think You Can Dance from the beginning. I loved World of Dance. And so I think my heart lies a little bit more in the in the competitive ones. But I, I just like this idea of Leah being into that and using it throughout. And so some of the most fun I had was creating some of these shows that she watches, right? There's the the one you mentioned with the moms called Mama Knows Best. There's the one um, America's Hottest Baker, where they have to bake in nothing but an apron. And, you know, I created shows that kind of tie into other things. And I, I try to use them in the end. And then, um, and then I hope this isn't a spoiler, but Kai arranges um, something for Leah at the end as a surprise that's based on The Amazing Race, which is also a reality show that I love. So I just like this idea of kind of using something that clearly a lot of people love since the ratings are very high, but a lot of people, myself included, are sometimes a little bit embarrassed to admit that we do watch them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is an actual Chinese dating show where like the Bachelor Bachelorette has to win the date by having the parents agree to like setting their daughter or son up with the the contestant. And it's, it's such a, I remember watching this and thinking this is the most like Chinese dating show I've ever seen in my life. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> my parents used to watch some and back then it was hard to get when I was little. It was, I think we had a friend who would pay for TV from 
Taiwan and then they <laughs> recorded it on a VHS and handed it to my parents. You know, it was like a very now you can just look online. But um, I remember watching some of those with my parents. And and yes, that is a very Chinese uh, reality show. <laughs> I just feel so mortified. I would never <laughs> I want my parents as far away from my dating life as possible. <laughs> yeah. Although when whenever um, you see some reality shows where they do bring the family on and you know, like on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, I, I, I always think like if there's ever like a child of Asian immigrants, like their family would not go on that. And that would just be, I mean, that would create ultimate drama, right? Like my parents would put up the biggest fit. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? You, like, yeah. you want to meet your partner? I know so many nice. Exactly. Uh, like, What's his job? Where did he go to school? What's his yeah. job? <laughs> <laughs> what college? <laughs> I, I looked on the website LinkedIn and it says that he makes this much. Like, I don't think he's good for you. Like, it's it, it sounds like a nightmare. Uh, but good TV. Um, yeah, but very good TV. Um, I am not as embarrassed to say I love reality shows, especially dating reality shows. And I've definitely watched my share of of really weird Asian dating shows, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but as we wind down, I just want to ask, what is a wish you would like to make on a magical lantern this this New Year, since Lunar New Year is um, right around the corner for us? Oh, I love that question. So the wish that I would make is the same wish that I have made the past couple years, which is that I would love to just be able to continue writing these stories, having them be able to find homes and having them be able to find readers. That's always been my career goal is is to be able to write these stories for as as long as I can and as long as publishing and, and readers will have me. So it it really does feel like the wish that I wrote on my lantern in 2013. So 10 years ago now. Wow was to be able to make a career in writing. And so really that has come true. So I just want to say a thank you to all my readers, to everyone who supported me. This really has been a dream come true. Yeah. So where can um, our listeners find you on the internet? I am on Instagram and Twitter as Gloria C. Chow, C-H-A-O. And I love to hear from readers, so please reach out. I also have a newsletter that you can find on my website, which is gloriachow.wordpress.com. Well, Gloria, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. And I'm looking forward to having you back sometime in the future, for sure. Thank you so much for having me. This was so lovely. Thank you. And that was Gloria Chow. Her latest book, When You Wish Upon a Lantern, is available now at bookstores everywhere, including um, our Books and Boba online bookstore. Um, I feel like we need to remember to plug this thing because um, <laughs> when you buy a book off the bookshop, not only do you support your local bookstores, but also us at Books and Boba. And we really do appreciate um, those of you who have bought books from the bookshop because it does go to helping us pay for our hosting and um, like coffee once in a while. <laughs> Yeah, and also it supports independent bookstores all across the country. And I'm sure the authors also appreciate the fact that they that you guys bought their books. Yeah, so. and also there are a ton of really great curated lists that Rira has painstakingly put together in a variety of genres and categories. So if you're, if you're ever looking for um, science fiction books, romance books, or even children's books written by Asian and Asian American authors, definitely check it out. It's definitely a good resource for, for your gift buying needs. And while we're on this topic, uh, another thing that we should probably ask for more often is if you do enjoy our podcast, um, please leave us a rating review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, it really does help us out uh, in terms of getting our podcast in front of more people um, and getting more people to um, pay attention to our podcast. Uh, Rira and I have big plans for Books and Boba moving forward and your assistance in helping us grow will go a long way. So um, thank you in advance uh, for helping us out. And thank you to everyone who has left a rating review and for your kind words. It really does mean a lot. Uh, but yeah, on that note, um, Rira, can you remind us what we are reading for book club for February 2023? We are reading The Charmed List by Julie Abe, 
And we have a couple more days until the end of February. So if you guys have not cracked open the book, we still have time. It is a very breezy book. Uh, definitely a palate cleanser from Babel, our last book club pick. And, you know, I'm really excited to talk about this book because Julie Abe has been on the show before. And I just love how she writes whimsical, magical, uh, fluffy things. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying yeah. the contemporary take on like magic and witches and and sorcery so um definitely looking forward to chatting with you and as always if you've already finished the book and have any thoughts um please let us know on our goodreads forums we try to include um listener feedback whenever possible and we would love to include your thoughts in our discussion episode as well but thank you again to gloria chow uh for talking with us and we'll see you all next time yeah bye everyone Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mi Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace. Peace.